This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Sonia Mather, family physician and a person living with Parkinson's for about 24 years. I'm co-chair here at the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council, and I really have the pleasure of being your moderator today. As you may know, genes are carried in our DNA, those units of inheritance that determine the traits that are passed down from parent to offspring. We inherit, I believe, about 3 billion pairs of genes from our mothers and fathers, and they determine the color of our eyes, how tall we may be, and then also in some instances, the risk we have in developing certain diseases in our lifetime. So today we're gonna to talk about the genetics behind Parkinson's disease. We'll go over what to know if you have a Parkinson's genetic mutation or think you might. We'll cover genetics testing and the latest advancements in genetic research. We've got a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Let me first introduce our panelists. First, I'd like to welcome Dr. Roy Alcale. He's the Chief of the Movement Disorders Division at Tel Aviv Sarasky Medical Center and Associate Professor of Clinical Neurology at Columbia University. And his research focuses on genetics and biomarkers in Parkinson's disease. We also have with us today Jenny Verbrugge, a genetic counselor at the Department of Medical and Molecular Genetics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. She works with participants getting genetic testing done through research, including the foundation's landmark study, the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI, which we will address later. And finally, we welcome John Gilman, co-founder and CEO of the business company Crunchbase. John doesn't have Parkinson's, but has a LERC2 mutation, and he's also a participant in PPMI. So welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you all here. So um, I mentioned very briefly how genes carry information and determine what makes us us in many ways. But perhaps, Jenny, we could start with you, and you could explain it a little bit more clearly than I did. What do we know about genes, and what are some of the terminology involved when we talk about genetics? Absolutely. Yeah, so understanding genetics can sometimes get complicated. So uh, let's walk through some terms today to uh, kind of help shed some light, give us a little bit of background. Right. So let's start by talking about DNA. So DNA is basically our genetic code. It's our genetic information that's in each one of our cells. A gene is a segment of DNA. It's like a set of instructions. A gene tells our body how to make a protein. And proteins have different roles in our body. Uh, genes are inherited. Uh, so genes determine our traits and characteristics like eye color. Uh, but genes can also determine if we may have a disease or risk for disease. A variant is basically a change in the DNA so a change in, in the DNA instructions, kind of like a, a change in the spelling of a word. Um, a variant may or may not change the way a gene works, or in other words, affect the way a protein is made or way a protein functions. A mutation is uh, basically a variant in the DNA 
um, that causes a gene not to work. So in other words, a variant um, disrupts that process of our body making a protein, and that can lead to disease or risk for disease. So hopefully this kind of helps us give a little bit more of a background for the rest of our conversation today. Yes, thank you, Jenny. That's that's great to know because the words can be a bit confusing. Even the differentiation between variant and mutation um, may not necessarily make a difference in terms of, of, of the results that you get from your genetics testing, but, but may actually play a role in our understanding for sure. So... Roy, Ginny has explained to us sort of some general concepts in genetics, but what do we know about genetics as it relates to Parkinson's disease specifically? Sure. So uh, we've learned a lot in the last couple of decades. Um, uh, if you look at books uh, talking about Parkinson's in the, uh, in the uh, 1980s or 90s, they didn't mention genetics as being a major component. And uh, the, our knowledge has really exploded. So if we look at the entire DNA, there is more than 60 spots on the DNA that have been associated with increased risk for Parkinson's, mm -hmm. which each one of them probably contributes just a tiny uh, component of incremental risk. So um, when we try to look at where do we see changes that really, if one carries them, the risk uh, is significantly higher, uh, we identify that we basically there is a consensus about some seven genes um, that um, that uh, mutations in which or alterations in which would uh, increase the risk for Parkinson's. Still, in most cases, the alterations increase the risk. They do not necessarily mean that if you have them, you have Parkinson's, one would develop Parkinson's. So just right. like not all cigarette smokers will develop lung cancer, but the association is there. In some places, the association is very strong, and in some places, the association is um, milder, which means that some mutation carriers, but not all, will develop Parkinson's. The first genes that we discovered were genes that the risk, mutations that in which cause high risk for Parkinson's. So, um, and we crudely divide those to those where the risk is high if you get them from both a mutation from both mom and dad, and then they're called recessive, and those where it's enough to have one abnormal copy, so just mother or just father, and these are the dominant genes. So the, cl typical, uh, the classical dominant gene is alpha-synuclein, that is abbreviated there as SNCA, and the, uh, the recessive genes that are more common are Parkin or PRKN and PINK1, which usually uh, we find when uh, people with younger onset of Parkinson's um, get genotyped, so people in their 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. late, less likely later. The major change in the field of uh, genetics that made the results more relevant to a much larger group of people are the, uh, the findings of the gene LARC2, LRRK2, and mm -hmm. the gene GBA, which is an abbreviation of glucocerebrosidase. Since mm -hmm. glucocerebrosidase, say, I'm going to say GBA from now on. These two genes are much more common. So combined, when we look at all these genes, these five and a couple, two more, uh, DJ1 and VPS35, Roughly 10 to 15 percent of people with Parkinson's, independent of their ancestry or um, genetic background, uh, carry a mutation or a, an abnormal variant in one of those seven genes. But these numbers can be higher in selected populations. So in people of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, between GBA and LARC2, one third, around one third of those with Parkinson's carry a mutation in GBA or LARC2. 
And in North African Berbers, um, which is like people who are originally from Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, um, the up to 40% of the people uh, with Parkinson's there have the LARC2 mutation, the same mutation that is found in Jews. So you mentioned that obviously not everyone has these mutations, develops the disease. Are there numbers that you sort of have in mind, like what the risk would be for someone that, say, has a LERC2 or GBA mutation in terms of their risk uh, above the general population for developing the disease? Sure. So ideally, to tell that, I need to genotype everyone with Parkinson's, everyone in the general population, and then give an estimation. We cannot do that. I wish we could. Uh, so what we can do is go to people with those mutations and ask about the parents, assuming that the, at least one of the parents carried the mutation, and then uh, estimate the risk this way. And it's not the best way, but it's mm -hmm. the best we have. And based on that data, roughly around, I would say, crudely 10% of those with GBA mutations would develop Parkinson's. It also depends on the GBA gene, if you have a mild mutation or a severe mutation. So uh, the numbers, um, but that's more or less the case. So it's, uh, compared to, let's say, 2% of the general population um, in, at, at an elderly age have Parkinson's. So GBA is roughly 10%. Some mutation is 7, but there, is a, there, is a report, there are reports on 15. And in LARC2, uh, there is, again, uh, the literature is quite... Um, uh, inconsistent, but the best reports estimate the risk at around 30%. So if I need to put one number, I would say that. For pink okay. one and Parkin, if you have two mutations, the risk is very high. And for alpha synuclein, the, the mutations are too rare, so um, I don't want to commit to a number. Okay, understandable. Speaking of LERC2, John, could you share with us how you came to know that you're a carrier for LERC2, the LERC2 mutation? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Um, it was probably about um, about eight years ago now. Um, I, uh, I I work in technology, and I just got into what was then called the, the quantified self movement, uh, and just learning more about my body through technology and genetic testing. And consumer genetic testing was one of the options that I sort of uh, went down just for the path of you know thinking about things of how I can optimize my health and um, and live a healthier life. And then when I got the results back. You know, went went to the section where it talked about risk factors, um, and that's where I saw risk for Parkinson's. You know, I forget the exact number that was reported back then, um, but much higher than obviously than, than average, and um, and it showed that I, I had the LERC2 mutation. And at first, you know, I sort of didn't um, didn't know what to do with that. I, I don't have a family history of Parkinson's disease, um, and so first thing uh, I did was was go to Google and. Uh, Google the, the LARC2 mutation to try and learn more. And after skipping through um, or skipping over the Wikipedia page, uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation actually, you know, had a great blog post um, that explained a lot about what LARC2 is, the risks, and, and, and getting involved. And so that was the how I learned more about it and and the, my introduction to to the world of of, uh, of Parkinson's and LARC2 and how it fits into that that puzzle. So. Um, Happy to talk more about it at some point, but that's sort of how I uh, got got uh, found out about my my mutation. Right, um, and it kind of ties into my next question, which a lot of questions in the chat are are um, alluding to this, and also one of our pre-submitted questions: patients that have um, genetic mutations, they're wondering about whether or not they should have their relatives checked for the same type of mutation. And I think, you know, all three of you might have different perspectives on how to handle this question, because it's not a clear and easy decision. 
Um, what would you recommend that they do in terms of, you know, you know you have a genetic mutation yourself. What do you sort of disclose or um, consider when and speaking to your relatives about, about the mutation and whether or not they should get tested? Um, let's start with you, John, because you, you sort of in a similar situation. How have you handled that? Sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, my experience is that it, it, every individual has a very has their own um, predisposition to to genetic testing because, in some respects, you know, you're finding out some a risk factor that may not impact you for for many years. And some people are of the you know I would rather know camp, and some you know I, I would not rather know. Um, right. And in terms of my immediate family, you know, my I know I did get the mutation from from my father's because. My, both my parents got um, got tested, um, and he currently does does not have have Parkinson's. But it was sort of you know conversations with with my brothers and other relatives. It really was very individual individualistic, and it was based on their preferences on on what to know and what not to what they would prefer not to know. I could just say based on you know my personal experience of of having found it out, and then now being able to participate in the PPMI study um, right. that it's been such a you know unique and, and rewarding aspect to be able to feel like I can contribute even before having any knowledge of that I would be down down the road at risk for Parkinson's that can be part of a study that is on the path towards a cure. So uh, right. for, for myself, it, it's taken something that at first was sort of, you know, um, not great news to get and turned it into something that I can really use to, to help contribute towards making a difference. And that, that um, that's been a really rewarding aspect of it. Uh, obviously being involved with the Fox Foundation and, and Team Fox through all the fundraising efforts. Yeah, that, I mean that's a remarkable perspective, and uh, and and one that um, you know you've you've sort of turned, like you said, some news that you may not have been so happy to receive, but you've turned it into a positive um, effect, which is really admirable. Thank you for that, um, Dr. Alkali. What would you advise patients that test positive for a genetic mutation? Um advice would be a strong word. I think it would go over the options and, um, and, and discuss the pros and the, the pros and cons. I think that um, even before when you, um, uh, when someone wants to get tested for uh, the mutations and they have Parkinson's, I tell them before you get tested and get the results back, think what will you do with a positive result? Will you share with your family or not? And if you're ambivalent about sharing, maybe you don't want to get tested. So I think a lot of uh, discussion before, because knowledge cannot be undone. On the other right. hand, I think that the, so it's like a, it's, a, right. it's, a, it's an irreversible decision to tell. Uh, on the other hand, I think that the conservative approach that um, was prevalent in the uh, medical field of, okay, there's nothing to do with it, so let's not get tested, uh, is... Uh, how archaic, like people get tested without us. We know that um, 10,000 people with Parkinson's uh, participated in 23andMe, or at least 10,000, because that's the number of samples they contributed to a genetic study. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that it's better to get the results back in a protected environment of genetic counseling or a physician than to get it by... Um, celebrating the holidays with a gift of direct-to-consumer and uh, get this result in front of you that um, then you're now what uh, question. Right. And, and I think like John said it very accurately, this is my experience with families, is that it's very common that even within families, some decide they want to know and some decide they don't. And 
I think anyone that wants to know should have access to testing, but um, I don't have an opinion. Right. Jenny, do you find that with uh, the families or the people that you counsel as well? And what do you advise them in terms of disclosure to um, their family members and, and recommendations regarding screening? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, a really common topic that comes up um, when we talk to people with genetic test results. Um, you know, how do I think about these results and how do they impact my family members? Should I share my test results with my family members? Um, how should I share them? When? Who should I share them with? Um, and, you know, we definitely do talk through this information or, you know, kind of help support people through this process of kind of thinking about the considerations in uh, whether they want to share their test results with their family members and then kind of, you know, how to do that um, in the most helpful way. And it, it is, um, you know, definitely we, we advise and, um, uh, you know, recognize that family members can have different reactions. Some will want mm -hmm. to know everything possible. Um, right. Others maybe are a bit more hesitant to do, uh, to, to learn about their genetic risks. Um, so they're, you know, just like people are very, uh, have different uh, thoughts on whether genetic testing is going to be a good thing for them or not. Um, I think um, family members can react in the same way. Yeah, I agree. That's been my personal experience as well in terms of my own situation, it, it really depends on the family member and, and what their um, appetite for that sort of thing would be in terms of what they would do emotionally with that kind of information. So I, I agree. Um, maybe we can continue on, Jenny, to the next slide. Um, I've often used the description that genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger when it comes to certain diseases like, like Parkinson's disease. But I think you've taken it one step further in your explanation using the Parkinson's jar model. So could you please maybe go through that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so the, thinking about the genetics of Parkinson's can be complicated. So sometimes during genetic counseling, we might use this visual aid and to kind of think about uh, kind of the, all the complex causes of Parkinson's and how this all works, because it can get complicated. Mm -hmm. um, so we think about it that, uh, you know, we all have a Parkinson's jar, right? Um, and we know that with, uh, in most cases, Parkinson's results from this complex interplay of uh, genetic factors, uh, environmental factors, aging, kind of all these factors together triggering the process of Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So if we start with the picture on the left of the slide, um, we have our Parkinson's jar in the middle. Um, on the left side, the blue triangles would represent these factors uh, that are not genetic, so environmental risk factors, aging, other factors. Um, on the right side are uh, kind of these yellow marbles or, or balls that represent our genetic risk factors. We likely, many of us carry genetic risk factors for Parkinson's. Um, some are more common and those tend to um, factor in in smaller ways to our disease risk. And then um, as like the larger marble represents maybe a, a genetic variant or a genetic factor that plays maybe a larger role in susceptibility or risk for Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So then walking through the picture in the middle, um, we have our uh, genetic risk factors in our jar. And then as time goes on, um, we uh, gather different factors, environmental factors in the jar. 
uh, we age, we get exposed to different um, environmental factors like chemicals and whatnot. And the thought is that when part, when the jar uh, comes to the top or fills to the top, um, basically that's when Parkinson's disease develops. Right. Now, the exciting thing in, a, in a, a place where a lot of research is interested is um, in trying to learn or trying to understand certain protective factors. So we're okay. starting to learn there may be some protective factors that perhaps we could put on the lip of the jar and maybe make the jar um, get bigger. Um, mm -hmm. And these might be things like um, changes in lifestyle, like exercise and other things. Um, but you know, certainly this is a, an area of research where we really wanna uh, gather a better understanding of both our disease risk um, and the risk factors related to that, including genetic factors, but also the factors that may confer some degree of protection for Parkinson's. That's actually really interesting. And something I'd like to go into a little bit more detail about, um, but maybe just let, let's back up to the environmental risk factors. Um, either Jenny or, or Roy, if you could answer perhaps, um, what are some known environmental exposures that may increase our risk for developing Parkinson's disease if we have that sometimes genetic predisposition to do so? Yeah, so we, we talk about uh, during, during our counseling sessions, we often will get questions about what are the environmental factors. And um, I mentioned pesticides. That's an area where um, there's lots of research that's linked um, and associated pesticide exposure, especially those uh, pesticides used in farming. Um, but there's research evidence that's linked uh, other types of chemicals, um, things like head injury, um, certain infectious factors. And we, we likely don't have all the answers for environmental factors that may be linked to Parkinson's. So again, that's another important area of research where I think we need, you know, we, we certainly have questions that remain. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I've heard um, of paraquat and um, mm -hmm. used in farming and pesticides, which is actually banned in a lot of countries, but not in where I am in Canada, and I don't believe in the U.S., as well as TCE, which is used as a, a solvent, I guess, for a lot of um, in a, lo a lot of um, uh, manufacturing companies and dry cleaning and that sort of thing. A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people aged 60 and up who have close relatives living with the disease. Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org PPMI to see if you're eligible. That's michaeljfox.org PPMI. It's really interesting when you said that protective factors can make the jar taller. And um, Dr. Alkali, could you maybe um, describe some of those protective factors that, that we have maybe some evidence um, that they may help, they may help minimize or, or reduce our risk of developing Parkinson's disease? Yes. So I wish I could name more than I can actually name because it's a, uh, I wouldn't say that it's a million-dollar question because uh, I wish it was only a million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> because the question is really, when we said that in GBA and LARC2, the majority of carriers will not develop Parkinson's, uh, people would like to know what can they do to not develop Parkinson's. So uh, we uh, have some evidence that exercise is protective. But again, it's protective. It's a, we know of a lot of athletes who have Parkinson's, so it's not um, a foolproof. Uh, probably avoiding pesticides is a good idea. 
and um, uh, there's a um, convincing data that smoking is protective. Having said that, I'm not going to recommend anyone to smoke to protect <laughs> themselves from Parkinson's. So, right. uh, but we do try to go into the biology. I think the um, a lot of the research um, we do and a lot su- supported by the Michael J. Fox is to compare people with um, mutation with and without Parkinson's to try to understand uh, what is different in the biology between those who developed Parkinson's and those who didn't. And today we don't have much more an- many more answers above what I already said, but I hope mm-hmm. that uh, we'll be able to, um, uh, to be more uh, uh, specific in the future. I'll uh, use that opportunity to answer a question in the chat that, in the chat that someone mentioned, um, a family member who's an identical twin that one has Parkinson's and yes. one not. And mm-hmm. even though we are all like my research is genetics and it makes no sense to me that someone could be identical and not have um, uh, the same biological conditions. Uh, mm-hmm. This from Sweden where the uh, twin registries is, uh, or the twin registry is very strong showed that uh, identical twins with Parkinson's, the risk of their, um, uh, identical twin to have Parkinson's is roughly 12 to 15%. These are the numbers mm-hmm. they mentioned. So even if they're wrong 50% of the time and the risk is 25%, it's still so much lower than what mm-hmm. I would have guessed uh, coming into reading that research. So right. it's, a lot of it is in the genes, but not all of it is in the genes, that's for sure. It's, it's very unusual, you're right, because yes, genetics would, would dictate a higher number really. And then, you know, they're often raised the same way. So exposure to environmental, uh, you know, toxins and that sort of thing, you would think would be similar as well. So it's a very interesting um, question to to ask. Um, John, have you made any changes in your lifestyle or even your outlook with the knowledge that you're a carrier for Lurk2? Yeah, it's um, just sort of, I think, since getting involved with the foundation and understanding the um, my genetic mutation, I've just been paying attention to the research and, and sort of keeping a, a tab on those high-level recommendations. So, um, you know, I was exercising sort of before I found out, but just continuing th- with that. Um, so I wouldn't say I really have changed much, but it's just sort of, it's another aspect that I'm keeping my eye on is sort of as mm-hmm. research comes out, to, is there anything I should be changing or is there anything right. I should be doing? And and again, I think that's another unexpected positive of, of getting the testing done is that being able to be so proactive and it's not like I'm waiting until um, later in life to, to start taking some of these protective measures. If information okay. comes out, I'm able to, you know, to react to it to it sooner. So I'm sort of, you know, uh, eagerly waiting and sort of paying attention to all the news as it comes in uh, and, uh, and yeah, taking it that, that taking that approach. That awareness, I think, is really important. And, you know, exercise always keeps coming up, but I think that's healthy for, for all of us to be doing anyway, as difficult as it might be sometimes. Um, Jenny, as a genetics counselor, we're talking about all this testing. You, you help make sort of sense of the results that, that, that people receive after they've done a genetics test. Could you start by telling us the process of taking that test and what kind of information someone can hope to gain? From those results, John mentioned the increased risk of Parkinson's. He found out from these test results. But what 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 generally should people expect? Yeah. So um, so uh, to talk first a little bit about a genetic counselor and what our role is, because we might actually meet with somebody who's interested in genetic 
testing for Parkinson's, we might meet with them before they decide to have a genetic test or mm -hmm. after um, they've had a genetic test. So genetic counselors uh, basically have uh, specialized graduate training in genetics and counseling. Um, mm -hmm. So we're sort of the experts in helping interpret and explain complex genetic information while also providing support to people. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, our kind of aim and goal is to really empower people and their families with information and guidance, um, helping people understand, you know, the genetic contribution to disease, helping them understand their family history, helping them evaluate genetic testing options, um, helping mm -hmm. them understand genetic test results and how they may be used. Um, and genetic counselors may serve in different roles. So we're often a part of a healthcare team where we work in collaboration with physicians and physician specialists like neurologists. Mm -hmm. um, but genetic mm -hmm. counselors also, there's a growing role um, of us being um, important members of a research team as well. Um, so really kind of we're there to help support people through that testing process, um, to kind of guide them, help them understand the ins and outs, what genetic testing can tell them, uh, what mm -hmm. genetic testing may not be able to tell them and the limitations. Um, and of course, there's many different genetic tests out there. Um, so helping kind of people understand the complexities um, and the nuances of genetic testing that can be there. And um... Is there free genetic testing available in terms of any of the options that you have listed? Yeah, so um, so to walk through the slide a little bit, um, uh, a person can access genetic testing uh, for Parkinson's through different means. Um, I would say the, probably the most common way, or at least currently right now, where people may access genetic testing for Parkinson's is really through um, participating in research studies. So mm -hmm. for example, um, through the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative or PPMI studies. Um, so again, um, we help people uh, through that process of um, learning about that genetic testing that may be available through the PPMI study and, and kind of uh, understand their test results when they have them. Um, a clinical genetic testing route um, is sort of the traditional way that people may get genetic tests. And right now we're not doing a whole lot of that with Parkinson's, um, mainly because there's some cost barriers, insurance barriers. Um, genetic test results don't yet um, change care or treatment for Parkinson's in a large way. Mm. So it's not likely that most people's insurance, unfortunately, is gonna cover the cost of it. Um, the the third option is a newer option, what we call consumer-initiated genetic testing. So this is a is a way where um, really it's more patient-driven, um, but it's still a test that's ordered through a doctor. Um, but the doctor is not necessarily uh, that patient's doctor. It may be a doctor that's contracted through that genetic testing laboratory. And often there's a genetic counselor involved um, where initial information is gathered from the patient about medical history and family history um, to ensure that the uh, kind of more optimal genetic testing um, is, is ordered for that um, particular individual. Right. And then the last option, a direct-to-consumer genetic test, of course, is quite popular. Um, and that's a, a way people can get genetic testing um, without a healthcare provider or a doctor ordering the test. 
And mm -hmm. people who do uh, that genetic testing for a number of different reasons, say to learn about their ancestry, to learn about genetic mm -hmm. traits, or to learn about their health risks. And certainly right. people get, um, you know, they, they feel empowered um, and have some uh, personal, um, find the information very personally useful. Mm -hmm. um, but that testing also creates some challenges as well. Um, so um, challenges in, say, um, maybe the scope of genetic testing may not, may not be the best fit for that individual. Um, you know, maybe it's too broad or too narrow a scope of a mm -hmm. test. And then sometimes, um, so depending on how it's done, where it's done, um, direct-to-consumer genetic testing can sometimes um, create confusing results. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes misleading and even unexpected information can come up. Right. Um, right. So, you know, as it's challenges, it has opened up access. And um, I think people um, really are hungry for genetic testing information. Um, mm -hmm. And um, really, I would encourage anyone that's thinking about doing genetic testing, whether it's for a research study or through their doctor, um, really kind of take some time to explore the ins and outs of that genetic test, what right. it can tell you, what it can't tell you, and then um, you know meet with someone who has expertise in uh, in Parkinson's, um, whether mm -hmm. it's um, a doctor like Dr. Alcale or a genetic counselor. Um, you know we're here to answer people's questions and kind of help them navigate through this kind of complicated process and this kind of list of different testing options. Um, right. When we think about testing for a research study, you know, that the cost of, of doing genetic testing would typically be covered through a research study. Um, the other options will have some degree of cost associated with them, just depending on the test and, and the option. Sure. Um, Dr. Alkali, when should someone with Parkinson's disease consider getting testing done? Are there certain guidelines that you look at from a clinical perspective? Sure. So first of all, I would say that um, when we talk about genetic testing, uh, I would state the obvious that I would distinguish between people with Parkinson's where the diagnosis is already there. And then the question mm -hmm. is to identify a, a gene that may have caused it to mm -hmm. people who are uh, without Parkinson's and they're looking for to see whether they are have they have risks or uh, they just right. get tested through uh, those mechanisms so uh, I think the the most uh, traditional testing uh, happen when people um, in the clinical testing it happens when people are at have Parkinson's at a young age, still at the level of um, family planning, and they want to know if they carry something that has a risk for their offspring. Or, uh, and sometimes the genetic testing can be reassuring if they carry a mutation in a, re in a recessive gene, the risk for their kids is significantly lower. Mm -hmm. um, the, so that's usually when I think of when did I use clinical genetic testing, it was uh, when people were still in the family planning stage and I wanted a counselor uh, to be involved because the questions were beyond Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about uh, um, research studies or clinical tests for people with Parkinson's, uh, I would say that there's uh, three instances where I would recommend testing. Uh, and that is when I call it a kind of actionable. The first mm -hmm. is um, uh, if someone wants to participate in clinical trials, there are clinical trials that are open only for LARC2 carriers or only for mm -hmm. GBA carriers. If you're mm -hmm. someone who wants to do clinical trials, you need to get tested if you want to do those studies. So that would be 
one um, instance where I think genetic testing can be helpful. Again, I would rather recommend getting the test outside of that trial to get the results in a uh, neutral environment, but that would be one indication. Another indication would be when someone uh, wants to know. People have Parkinson's, they want to know why. And if they want to know why and I have access to research testing, I will refer them to the test. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't encourage people to get tested if they're not interested in it, but if they are, uh, I will uh, refer to testing. And the third uh, instances, uh, or the fourth instance is um, uh, when people really want to know what's their disease progression like, what is the pro uh, what does the future entail, and they want to know anything they can. And if they really want to know anything they can, the genetics can help us because we know that the uh, rate of progression of the motor symptoms, the uh, cognitive symptoms can be different uh, in carriers of Parkin, LARC2, alpha-synuclein, or Parkin. So um, again, when I refer to genetic testing is you, or, or offer genetic testing is really when someone wants it. The reasons why I think one would want it is either family planning, clinical trial participation, um, uh, if they just want to know why they had it or if they want me to provide them more information about uh, the prognosis. Right. So again, each of those are very personal decisions and everyone will have a different appetite for that knowledge as well. Yeah. Right. What we did find out from studies is, uh, and I think Jenny mentioned it, and, 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 and is that people have much more appetite than the physicians had appetite to, to serve. So I really think what we learned from 23andMe is that uh, the physicians are too conservative and mm -hmm. people want to know. And my perspective is that um, uh, it's much better to do it in a protected environment of a research, of a, of a genetic counselor, of a physician, uh, than getting results online. So, um, uh, but I've also learned that the conservative approach that we just didn't share results back from research studies is just not what people want. People want to know most of the time. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think the key takeaway from this discussion that we've had is doing it in that protected environment or uh, having the um, benefit of a, a genetic counselor taking you through it, I think is really important um, because the results can be confusing and misinterpreted very easily. So I think that's really important um, to, to consider. Um, your role in genetics research, and maybe, John, you can take us through a little bit more of the motivation that you had about joining um, PPMI, for instance. Um, why did you decide to join exactly? Yeah, it was really, you know, in reaction to, to getting that, that news and, you know, at that time, I guess, feeling a little bit of, of helplessness of just sort of, this is something that's not going to impact me for uh, a number of years, but, but what can I do now? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talked about some of those lifestyle actions, there were limited, a couple, but but not not many. And then I learned about the, the PPMI study in genetic research, and it just felt like such an actionable way for me to to sort of counter offset that helplessness and, and really be able to do something um, in the vein of, you know, finding a cure for everybody with Parkinson's, but then also selfishly for myself, you know, of, if I were to, uh, over time, develop um, uh, symptoms. So it really felt like um, such a, a natural thing to do after getting a, a test result like that. And, and yeah, as I mentioned before, it's just been a, a super rewarding experience to be part of that broader research study, um, you know, and, and playing a small part towards helping to, to find a cure and or finding the underlying, you know, um, 
biomarkers uh, for for mm -hmm. Parkinson's. So uh, it's um, yeah, it, it's it was sort of a, a, a very clear and and what has become very rewarding step for me to take uh, after getting this result. Right. So, I mean, I John, think that's. I wanted to ask you. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you because you mentioned that you did share your genetics with uh, people and family members. Um, are you also encouraging people to participate in research, or do you think it's again just like the genetic testing, something very personal that would fit some and not others? No, I, I, I do. Um, you know, I did uh, suggest that 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 folks would would um, uh, participate in, in research, and you know, for for my uh, my siblings and, and parents. Um, I think at the time they weren't looking for uh, they were looking for more young folks. So I sort of like was in a, a, a sample set that they were looking for in the PBMI study. Um, that wasn't the case for um, for my uh, my parents. But I think you know uh, again like for the the time commitment. You know it it seems like you know you're participating in, in research. It, it can be very time committed. It's been very minimal and sort of just six month or I forget the exact time window, but. Um, it hasn't been very time-consuming, and, and it just again um, been some of the most rewarding stuff that I've been able to do in, in the in the realm of um, helping to uh, to find these these biomarkers. So, um, so yeah, I, I do recommend it because I think my experience has been very very positive with it. Um, and haven't you know? I think that getting tested versus not testing, I found, is more um, more of an individualistic uh, choice. But once people are sort of willing to make that choice to get tested. The getting involved with research is a very natural next step. I think that type of proactivity is actually very empowering, which is what you're expressing. Um, Dr. Akale, can you maybe, when we're talking about participating in genetic studies, you don't always have to have Parkinson's disease, obviously, to, to participate. Um, can you perhaps explain why genetics research is important, even though the majority of cases of Parkinson's disease are what we call sporadic, and those individuals don't seem to have a known gen genetic mutation or, or family history of Parkinson's disease. Why, is, why are genetic studies actually important for the whole community? Sure. So, um, uh, the first of all, when we started genotyping, uh, offering people genetic testing um, mm -hmm. through um, uh, at no cost, including genetic counseling, we anticipated the group of the negatives to be 95, and the numbers that we really get is 85. So the, the people who carry mutations or variants that are increase the risk for Parkinson's is at least it's a roughly it's at least 10 percent. It's roughly mm -hmm. between 10 and 15 percent, and these are studies from both the United States and uh, international studies. So. Mm -hmm. um, I think with the, with the beauty about the genetic uh, uh, research nowadays and why I think we're in exciting times is that, and I've seen the change happen in front of my eyes, that the research was previously more um, observational, looking at, oh, this gene causes Parkinson's. Let's see how people with this gene Parkinson's progresses to let's act on this gene. Let's modify it. Let's slow it down if it works too much or let's enhance it if it works too little and see if we can um, a slow down parkinson's or b prevent parkinson's in the future in people who are carriers but these genes cause parkinson's and uh, a lot of uh, focus is put in whether whether problems in these genes are uh, also present in people without mutations and i mm -hmm. think from the genes that i mentioned the one that is the most obvious is the alpha synuclein so alpha-synuclein was um, uh, for 
quickly after alpha-synuclein was discovered, uh, researchers found that uh, when you look at the brains of people with bar- Parkinson's under the microscope, the mm-hmm. protein that you find uh, in many of them is the alpha-synuclein protein. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot, a lot of uh, clinical trials nowadays targeting the alpha-synuclein pathway, trying mm-hmm. to reduce the production of it, trying to produ- mm-hmm. reduce the aggregation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, activating the immune system against alpha-synuclein. In alpha-synuclein, the vast majority of these cl- trials, if not all of them, are offered to people with Parkinson's independent on their genotype. Mm. So even if we develop a, an intervention for GBA or LARC2, um, the target population that would probably benefit from it the most is the carriers, but we don't mm-hmm. know that, that it will help others as well. I want to give an example from another field but there was a very rare genetic disorder that caused uh, high cholesterol because of a problem in the receptor. Mm-hmm. So researchers developed the disease, uh, the, the drug statins, and it was tried right. in these families. And look at it today. And nowadays, uh, the fraction of people with genetic mutations who use statins is minimal, right? And it's a right. commonly prevalent, uh, very widely used drugs, it's a group of drugs. Yeah, that, that, that's a great, actually, example. I mean, it's just going to increase our general understanding of this disease, which may then lead to therapies, which is, which is great. Um, and we've mentioned PPMI uh, several times, but PPMI is the foundation's landmark study, the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, which is recruiting people with genetics change, genetic t- changes. Um, PPMI aims to change everything about how Parkinson's is diagnosed, treated, and potentially prevented. Thousands of volunteers with and without Parkinson's are needed. And the online part of PPMI is now open to anyone over the age of 18 and living in the United States, but there are medical centers across the globe that are recruiting participants. Um, You can get started in the study today by clicking the Get Started button in the Take Action box at the, uh, I believe it's the bottom right of your screen. And you can also learn more about PPMI um, by clicking the link in the resource list. Um, We talked a little bit um, about genetics research, and um, maybe we can further that discussion. Dr. Alkali, there are a number of genetic studies that are ongoing, and will hopefully, as I said, increase our understanding of the enigma that this disease is. Um, Are you hopeful that it will lead ultimately to treatments or therapies that will change the impact that this disease has? has like what are some of the promising studies coming down the pipeline right so uh, first of all i'm I'm very hopeful because otherwise um i'm in the right like this is what i do for a living it's really i think that if i I thought that it's not the right path i would have chosen chosen another one i think really this is um this is it we really don't want to offer the same of the dopamine replacement therapy in 2035 we want to be able to offer people precision medicine drugs that are tailored to their genetics. Um, And we also, uh, I think um, in general, so let me just take one step back and say that the three genes on which there's most therapies are alpha-synuclein, GBA, and LARC2. Mm-hmm. Alpha-synuclein, is the, as I said, is the prote- is the gene that mutations in which cause uh, Parkinson's in a dominant way, so it's enough to have one bad copy or duplication mm-hmm. of the gene. But we also know mm-hmm. that alpha-synuclein is important in the in, in, the, in the brains of people with Parkinson's independent of mutations. And that's why there is so many clinical trials for alpha-synuclein. And those, that, if they succeed, will be good for people with alpha-synuclein mutations, probably with GBA mutations, and uh, probably with people without any mutations. The mm-hmm. gene GBA, that just um, to take a step back, if you have two mutations in the gene GBA, one develops the disease Gaucher. 
So basically, yeah. mutations in the GBA gene are the link between Gaucher disease, some pronounce it Gauchers, and uh, Parkinson's, uh, where to get the disease Gaucher, which is a rare um, a metabolic condition, uh, mm -hmm. one needs two mutations in the gene, but it's enough to have one mutation. So to be a carrier of the gene, to be at an increased risk for Parkinson's. The advantage of the link is that Gaucher has been studied for many, many, many years. So we are now trying to take knowledge that was accumulated in the Gaucher literature and try mm -hmm. to apply it to Parkinson's. Specifically, mm -hmm. Gaucher has treatments. The major problem with those treatments is that they don't get into the brain. So mm -hmm. different pharmaceuticals are trying different compounds that will get into the brain to see whether uh, medications or interventions that would have uh, would it slow down Gaucher disease in the periphery, in the liver and the spleen, if we bring them into the brain, will they slow down or prevent Parkinson's? So mm -hmm. these are very exciting. LARC2, um, the K in the word LARC is uh, kinase, which means that it's an enzyme that adds phosphorus groups into other enzymes. Uh, luckily for us, uh, kinase inhibitors, drugs that block kinases, are very common in the oncology world. So the pharmaceuticals are very um, experienced in uh, developing inhibitors for LARC2, uh, for kinases, including LARC2. So mm. um, I am hopeful that, um, uh, that be between all of these clinical trials, one of them would work. Uh, I often say that uh, clinical trials are like frogs. You need to kiss a few until you get a prince. <laughs> but when we get a prince, everything will change, right? So... Um, we need to keep trying and keep trying until we find it, and we will find it. Uh, but I think the only chance of the researchers and the pharmaceuticals and the uh, physicians and uh, is to find those uh, interventions is if more and more people get genotyped, know that they are eligible for trials, and choose to participate. I think the mm -hmm. major holdback in a lot of these studies is that people don't know their genotype, and therefore they don't know that they're eligible to participate, and it's right. so hard to recruit. Um there was one question uh, that someone uh, submitted that they said they thought that drug trials in, were in the process um, for those of us with LERP2 mutations to suppress the mutation, but they seem to have stopped. Are there new trials starting up? Do you know anything about that? So uh, the information that I'm going to cite is from clinicaltrials.gov. It's a great website. Um, mm -hmm. One word, clinicaltrials.gov. And um, they are... Uh, a couple uh, the two pharmaceuticals that are most advanced in recruitment of patients are Denali Therapeutics and Biogen. Biogen studies active in multiple sites, including my site in Tel Aviv, um, mm -hmm. uh, where they um, uh, the Denali drug is an oral drug that you swallow it and it's supposed to inhibit the enzyme. Mm -hmm. The uh, Biogen intervention is an intervention that is injected to the spinal fluids. It's called antisense oligonucleotides. It's a genetic intervention that slows down, that reduces the, and the, the activity of the enzyme. The reason why people are very... Uh, the production of the gene and then the enzyme. The reason why people are very excited about antisense oligonucleotides is that in recent years, they've been successful in other neurological disorders, specifically the, you know, the baby's form of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease or spinal muscular atrophy. The ASOs change the course of that disease, and we're all very envious and want to replicate it in other diseases, including Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. That's a, a mouthful for most people, but I think that the, 
the key is I again. I think that the idea of the mouthful is to know that there's a lot going on. Right. And I think people are interested, really interested, they, and they get genotyped, then they can take a look at the trials that for their own gene, the LARC2 specific question that you received. Yes, there are two companies that are in the process of recruitment. Yes. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, there's also a, a question that, that has arisen that I think is really, really important in all aspects of research and clinical care, and that's um, the importance of increasing diversity in genetic studies. Um, can you maybe comment on why that's important? Um, sure. And then I'll start and Jenny can end. Um, yeah. So I think that the, a lot of what we know about the genetics of Parkinson's comes from the Caucasian population. And um, there are now significant efforts, um, some of them by the Michael J. Fox Foundation, of course, to try to diversify the knowledge we have and to also offer genetic counseling and testing to people of diverse backgrounds. Um, I think um, on one hand, because I think that genetic knowledge is uh, power. You want everyone to have power and not just one genetic population. And the other mm -hmm. is that I think that uh, if you compare genetic groups, uh, diverse groups, and you see the same finding in every group, it makes the finding much, much stronger. Uh, okay. For example, the LARC2 uh, mutation that um, was discovered in Spain and in Japan first, then later was discovered to be more prevalent in people of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry or, or North African Berbers. So mm -hmm. really uh, diversifying the population that participates uh, uh, is good for everyone. Right. And um, another question, I guess, we're doing some of the questions that are coming through the chat, but someone wants to know, are specific mutations associated with specific symptoms? Um, there are some basic things. Um, specific mutations in Parkin uh, come with a specific symptom of early onset, right? So that's a very clear uh, phenotype that is linked to it. Uh, it's, again, it, as a group, not on an individual level, people with LARC2 um, tend to have less cognitive changes. So uh, there are some pieces of information like this. I don't want to start going down a list, but um, these are examples of um, links between the genetics and the clinical uh, presentation. Great. Um, as we sort of wrap up our time together, I'd like, I'd like to ask each of you one last question. I mean, genetics testing, again, we've discussed it several times, is a very personal decision. If you had to name one thing that someone should really consider, um, the, the, it's very important to consider when making that informed decision to get genetics testing. What would each of you say that most important question to ask ourselves is? I'll start with um, Jenny. Yeah, so I would I would suggest for, for people thinking about genetic testing is really to take time to learn about the genetic testing, learn about what it can and can't tell you, um, you know, access genetic counselors or doctors, um, get your questions answered. And then the other thing I would say is um, uh, genetic testing is different than uh, most other laboratory tests that a doctor does because when you do a genetic test, it has an impact or can have an impact on your family members. So I would say engage your, your family, um, your family members in your uh, decision and in your discussion about genetic testing. Um, so I think those were those would be some of the things I would I would suggest people think about. Right. John? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I guess I, I wish I had this foresight before I, I went in with, with genetic testing, but really thinking about, you know, so much of genetic testing can be about the the risk factors and the negatives, but um, you know, on the opposite side, you know, thinking 
But if you're thinking about getting genetic testing, you know, the positive side that can come from it and sort of the actions that you can take. Obviously, we're talking about Parkinson's today, but genetic testing is so broad that there could be a lot of things around your health outside of Parkinson's that genetic testing could potentially help with. And, um, you know, I think taking that broader long-term view of, of testing and why you might find out some information in the short term that you need to, to process, um, you know, think about the long-term benefits uh, that, that you would get from, from testing and obviously weigh that with your own personal decisions on the, the downsides. Right. Dr. Alcalay? So if I take uh, one sentence from each one of the, from John and Jenny, when John said uh, for uh, the pro, the major pro for genetic testing is the actions you may take. If you're someone that may act, act take action on the results, that's a good reason to do it. If that would make you um, uh, participate in studies, live healthier, then definitely do it. The one caution is that the knowledge cannot be undone. So that's the... So think carefully and educate yourself because once you got the results back, it's, there's no way to take it back. I, I like that. Knowledge can't be undone. That's, that's a very good way of, of putting it. Um, I'd like to thank everyone very kindly for joining us today. I mean, I hope your time was well, you felt your time was well spent. I certainly did. And I learned a lot and that you found the discussion informative and valuable. Um, thank you, Dr. Alcalay and Jenny, for sharing your expertise, and John for sharing your invaluable experience. Um, I, I'm very inspired by everything you had to say. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining us. I know there were a lot of questions that we didn't get to, um, and hopefully um, some of what we spoke about will answer those questions. A lot of questions perhaps may be best um, discussed with a genetic counselor. Um, as as Jenny had described to us. But remember, I mean, those of us with Parkinson's have no real choice in our diagnosis, but how we face the challenges that this disease brings into our lives is really ours to determine. So empowering yourself by educating yourself as much as you can about this disease and attending these webinars is, is really going to be paramount in your outlook in terms of, of dealing with this disease. So until next time, thank you very much. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.